0: this is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.
1: You're listening to audio from a recent Q&A
0: session with Foundation staff at an event in New York City. Listen to the full panel discussion in a separate podcast on our website and in your podcast app. All right, let's move on to, um, to all of your um, uh, questions. And, and thank you for, for providing um, so many. And here's a great one to start. And, and Marco, why don't you take this one, um, which is please comment on the current state of the alpha-synuclein research trials. We talked about things that may lead to getting alpha-synuclein to clump up and, and, and create the Parkinson's problem. And related to that, everything from genetic uh, problems to, to many others, inflammation that may cause Uh, set alpha-synuclein clumping in motion, but we also have a half a dozen or more trials out there, I think maybe it's almost 10, that are testing different ways of of getting at those clumps of alpha-synuclein. Where are we with those trials? Yeah,
2: and and when I tell people that we have a really robust and healthy therapeutic pipeline, uh, it means two things. It it means, one, the numbers, having almost 10 trials that are targeting alpha-synuclein is incredible. And then the second thing is the the diversity, that all the different approaches that they're that they're taking to target alpha synuclein. Given how I mentioned before that the attrition rates are high, you want to make sure you got a lot of shots on goal, a lot of different approaches. And for alpha synuclein, we 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 see that in the uh, in in the pipeline. So for example, there are what's called biologics. A biologic just means that it's either a vaccine or it is a, an injection of an antibody to target LRRK2. Those are Two different approaches within the biologics approach. There is a second approach called small molecules. The reason we we call certain medicines small molecules is because uh, the drugs that are taken orally have to be quite small to be able to get through your blood-brain barrier. You have a barrier from your periphery to get it into your brain it has to be small enough to to get in. So there's a small molecule approach. All comes with with different pros and cons versus the biologics. There's a, even a third approach that is that is percolating, which I'm sure will eventually get it. Uh, into a clinical trials soon. It's a, it comes from the cancer work. It's called a protac approach, where you're actually using the natural ability of your cells to degrade uh, uh, foreign entities, and it's called the proteasome, and utilizing that to destroy alpha-synuclein. So it's, it's the number. There are a lot of trials out there, and the diversity, which I'm very excited to go.
0: And some have advanced into phase two, none yet in phase three, which is the third stage of the clinical trial process. Um, But that means fairly soon, once phase two are completed, and and there are some that look promising enough to move into phase three, we'll have a notion, right, within the next three to five years as to whether or not one of these may actually work. Yeah, exactly.
2: And then to Saini's point of de-risking, our investments in these early trials will then build a data package that is gonna get larger companies with more potential for funding to then intervene, either buy those programs, and then take it into a phase three trial, which is a very uh, expensive process.
0: Here's another question that connects um, in some ways to alpha and Rachel, that maybe you can, you can take, and the question is, is MJFF involved in any studies that look at gut bacteria and how that may relate to Parkinson's symptoms? There's been a tremendous amount of interest in this, the thought that maybe alpha-synuclein actually might start in the gut um, as opposed to the brain. And some of that is connected because of studies going way back that show this early connection between problems with constipation that, that may have to make, be connected to, uh, to Parkinson's. So where are we with that? What, are we, what do we know? What are we trying to find out?
1: Yeah, similar to inflammation, and there's a connection to inflammation, this is a tough one to tackle. Um, So there is a connection between the gut and the brain for reasons you detailed. Constipation is a very common symptom in Parkinson's that happens often decades before the disease starts. So we know that the gut is involved in Parkinson's somehow, some way. We also see that protein, alpha-synuclein, that clumps in the brains of people with Parkinson's in the gut. So whether it starts in the gut, and then spreads to the brain, or it starts in the gut and the brain at the same time, or it starts everywhere at the same time. That's yet to be determined, but we know it's there. Um, We also know that the gut is our first um, interaction with the environment, right? That's how our diet is processed. So we know that pesticides are associated with Parkinson's disease. We know that diet is associated with Parkinson's disease. So there are many different connections and yet to be determined exactly how all those connections fit in. Um, So there's a lot of work to be done here. The microbiome also is very large, lots of bacteria in the gut. So determining which are good, which are bad, how those change on a daily basis and how they change in Parkinson's is a tough thing to figure out. And so there's a lot of work to be done here.
0: Let's stay in that part of the anatomy for a moment um, because (laughs) there's another question about about diet uh, recommendations, which always comes up and people are interested in that often for really good reasons, because you know blueberries are antioxidants, so that might play a role in inflammation and so forth. Are we any further in really knowing whether there is such a thing as a diet that would make sense for either people who have been diagnosed or who are at risk for being diagnosed?
1: Well, I mean, we kind of chuckle about the fact that we always get this question, but it's good that we get this question because people want to know what they can do and how they can live well and those sorts of things. And diet is a really hard one to study. I mean, similar to exercise, it's hard to control what people eat and know that they're following a specific diet and and be very regimented on diets. Certain diets that have been studied in Parkinson's um, in, in very small studies, either they're um, very small controlled studies or there's no sort of like placebo group or control group. <laughs> the ketogenic diet, um, the Mediterranean diet, which focuses on you know whole foods, fish, Um, healthy fats like olive oils, um, the MIND diet, which is somewhat similar. Um, And these have shown, um, the Mediterranean diet in particular has shown some association with a lower risk of Parkinson's in people who don't have Parkinson's. The ketogenic diet is a little bit conflicting. So we don't, I mean, the long story short is that we don't have solid evidence to support one specific diet over another for Parkinson's. Some people will say they eat a gluten-free diet, for example, and feel fantastic. Is that because they have something else going on? Is that because their Parkinson's is mild? We don't know. So I think the, the sort of party line is to eat a healthy balanced diet. Eat a lot of fruits, eat a lot of vegetables which have antioxidants we know are good for you. Um, eat whole grains rather than sugary processed American type diet. You know, Follow the perimeter of the store and eat whole unprocessed foods um, and eat as healthfully as possible. As far as whether you, know, you wanna try one particular diet over another, I think that's an individual conversation to discuss with your doctor. And a dietitian if you have access to one.
0: And, and by the way, um, after we're done today, uh, we'll see how well the, the Michael J. Fox <laughs> Foundation practices what it preaches by, by what's offered in the box lunches. And uh, don't uh, hold that, me that, personally to that. Are, I have nothing so to if, do with that. If those. there are no blueberries, you know, you can you can report that. <laughs> anyway, they're box lunches. You can pick them up after we're done, and we'll have our kind of networking and formal lunch um, afterward. Um, here's a question that, that um I think speaks to how the field continues to evolve. It's a question about stem cells and where we are with them. Ten years ago, that would have been front and center and where we think everything's going to go in right. terms of fixing Parkinson's disease. Then it kind of, there were bumps and problems and it became less a, a topic. Now there's kind of a little bit more interest to get, as well as clear kind of warnings to not sort of go by the latest stem cell treatment being offered in in some other country because that's that hasn't been proven yet. Lots going on. Marco, bring us up to date.
2: Yeah, and in a similar way to what's happening with alpha-synuclein and, and, and targeting that protein, uh, there's a lot of innovation that's happened with stem cells, and, and it used to be very politically charged discussion, and there's been uh, a lot of uh, new science that has kind of moved it away from that. Uh, For example, there's something called IPS cells or induced pluripotent cells. So there's discoveries that were made, Nobel prizes were were given up for this in which you can actually uh, take a adult human cell and add a chemical cocktail to it so that you revert that cell back to a embryonic stage, even though it's not an embryonic cell, that then can differentiate, it can then become for example, a dopaminergic cell. Uh, there's a small trial that's happening in Japan. That's very exciting. That that new science got quickly translated into, into a clinical trial. Uh, there's other other ways of taking uh, egg cells and shocking the egg cell so that all the chromosomes stay in that in, in that egg cell. And uh, that, that's a completely different stem cell approach. So just like with alpha-synuclein, they have the biologic class, the molecule class, You've got more shots on goal with different approaches, that's actually happening with stem cells also, uh, mm-hmm. which is
0: exciting. If- By the- Go ahead, Bridget.
1: I was just going to add on to that. So I think this is exciting. A lot of people ask about it. It's a novel way and a different route to potentially replace those dopamine cells that go missing in Parkinson's. But a couple sort of caveats on it. One is that we don't know that this would be a you know disease modifying Correct. or cure yes. for Parkinson's. You know, potentially it could really help with the movement symptoms and decrease your need for medication for long periods of time. But because we don't know, the cause and the underlying effect of the disease, could that take over eventually? And could you eventually need medication again? Or could it stop working? So these are the things that we need to figure out. Also, the stem cell trials that are ongoing and anticipated, these actually make dopamine cells out of iPSCs like, like um, Marco was talking about, and they implant them into the brain. This is very different from the stem cell clinics that you hear about touting you know, the cure for Parkinson's, arthritis, diabetes, on and on and on for potentially thousands of dollars. Some people do pursue that as an avenue of therapy, but that has not been proven, and that is not a, a clinical trial. So just you know, be wary if you think about those sort of stem cell clinics and, and discuss those with your personal physician, if that's something you're thinking yeah, about. Yeah, really
0: key point. Um, there are a lot of snake oil salesmen out there, and it's something I think we all have to be mindful of. Marco mentioned a, a moment ago, when he was talking about the variety of stem cell approaches, he used the phrase shots on goal, uh, it, it, it is impossible to get through any Michael J. Fox Foundation <laughs> meeting without hearing the phrase, shots on goal. Um, and as someone noted yesterday in our patient council meeting, I'm from Texas. I have no idea what, what shots on goal <laughs> is. I'm from Canada. But so. <laughs>
1: But
3: hockey.
0: But uh, just, let's take just a quick slide, side detour on that phrase. I don't know whether Debbie Brooks came up with that or where that actually came from. I think from. it
3: was Michael, actually.
0: Okay. Well, another Canadian. Um, uh, but But that means really that we... That, that phrase is there for a reason, because we want to have a lot of possibilities out there, because you don't know which one is going to actually get by the goalie and into the net.
3: Exactly. I think that's one of the unique roles that the foundation plays when we think about the uh, the whole field of Parkinson's research, is we're not wedded to one particular right. idea. We exist to be able to support the best science and the best approaches. And I think one of the things that we've learned, particularly looking at other fields, is that there's a real danger in assuming that one per- approach is the right approach. Approach. And I think all of you have seen in the news lately that there's a lot of um, you know negative uh, information coming out about some of these Alzheimer's trials, who all tackled the same sort of protein in this very similar manner. And one of the lessons learned is that there was a lot of really, really good science supporting going after Alzheimer's in this way but it didn't pan out, it seems like. And it doesn't mean it may not in the future, but right now it's not panning out. And I think our role as a foundation is to make sure that we constantly have a pipeline of new approaches and new ways of um, tackling Parkinson's disease and making sure that those are all being pushed forward because we still, unfortunately, there are a lot of unknowns about PD. And so we don't have that surety of being able to say, this is the one that's going to get into the goal. Rather we want to have as many chances of getting that one into the goal. Question about genetics
0: and genetic testing, another really interesting and, and uh, a challenging um, a question that I think confronts uh, many families. Um, so it's a two-part question. Where can I get genetic testing for free? Uh, and if I have a family history, is my risk actually higher? Um, so why don't you take the last part first, and then maybe you can speak mm-hmm. to the 23andMe partnership, um, Sohini. But on the question of, if I have a family history of Parkinson's, is my risk higher? and the kind of counseling that someone might want to consider before actually even taking a genetic test.
1: Yeah, so the answer is, I'm not sure, and not necessarily, just because you have a family member with Parkinson's disease, if they developed Parkinson's at you know the average age of onset of 60, you know, 58, 60, maybe not. You know your, your increase is maybe about, you know the, the average um, increase uh, the average risk of Parkinson's for the general population is about one percent for everybody, family member or not maybe your risk increases about to about 3% if you have a family member I don't know how much that would increase if you have a genetic component. So there's a lot of nuance in here, whether your family member is a little bit younger, it might be higher. If they have a genetic risk factor that you then maybe inherit, it could be a little bit higher. So that's where I think genetic counseling comes in and is really important and can be really helpful because genetic counselors are experts in this and they can help detail, set out a whole family tree for you that says, Dad had Parkinson's, mom didn't, my brother didn't had it, you know, I am not sure if I do. You know, these sorts of things and detail the whole thing and say, This is what I think your potential risk is before we go into testing. Here's all the things you should think about that genetic testing can and can't tell you before you even have the genetic testing. And then when you get your results, they can go over them with you and tell you what they do and don't mean. Because I think that's a really hard thing for a lot of people to swallow is getting these results back and saying, I don't know what this means. And then sometimes even taking them to your doctor who says, I'm not sure even what they mean. So having that sort of conversation and open discussion even before you have testing, again, about what it can and can't tell you and what it means for you or potentially means for you and your family is really important. So
0: I think a great point, because if you just take the numbers Rachel just mentioned, that the overall population has 1%. If you have a family member, maybe it goes up just one family member as opposed to several, because then the odds do change. If you have just one, maybe it goes up to three percent that's still you know three out of a hundred so it's not so much but depending on how that report is how that result is reported to you if you get something from a genetic test that says you have three times the chances of getting Parkinson's it sounds terrible right but maybe that's just one percent to three percent that's three times yeah it's, so it's, it's, it's really it's, important to have that sense
2: yeah it, it is and, it's, and, and I know it's a, it's a scary thing but it's really important to note that there are no mutations that are associated with Parkinson's that guarantee that you're gonna get Parkinson's disease. Uh, If you find that, that's called complete penetrance. And none of these genetic causes of the disease have complete penetrance. They're all incomplete penetrance. So it it increases the probability. It's, It's why biomarkers are so important Because that alone can't explain if you're going to get Parkinson's or not. There needs to be something else that's contributing to it.
0: Great context for us to have. And and just briefly, Sohini, then, though, speak to the partnership that the foundation does have with 23andMe and the role that that's played in developing getting more data from people who have those genetic uh, risk factors.
3: Sure. So I might take one step back. How many here have heard of Fox Insight? Oh my God, oh, that awesome, that's great. So then I don't have to say very much other than Fox Inside is an online study that the foundation um, sponsors, and it's sort of a complement to PPMI, where PPMI focuses on a very small population and goes very deep in, in trying to understand um, the disease through objective ways, clinical scales, um, sample collection, imaging, et cetera. Fox Insight is about trying to get um, information from Parkinson's patients in particular, but also others, um, about the lived experience of the disease. And one of the unique things that we have within Fox Insight is a collaboration with the personal genetics testing company 23andMe. So if you are a Parkinson's patient and you are enrolled in Fox Insight, you have the ability to, Uh, participate in the genetic component of Fox Insight that is um, enabled by 23andMe. You get their personal genome kit at no cost, and you're able to get um, your genetic testing done. One of the things the foundation um, um, offers through this approach is genetic counseling. So if you opt in to do this genetic component of Fox Insight, you will also be given um, information about how you can then have counseling sessions with the group who actually performs genetic counseling for our PPMI participants.
2: And an exciting thing now is that if you were to find out that you are a mutation carrier that there are actually trials now yes. out there that are that are that are I mean it's one thing to get information and not have any next step but there is a potential next step.
3: And I would also add that for those that may not want to go down that route because there is so much research focused on genetics Genetic testing is often now offered as part of many research opportunities. So going on to Fox Trial Finder will give you a great way of seeing what genetic research is occurring and whether you can get genetically tested and receive that information through that mechanism. We
0: just have a few minutes left uh, before we get to discover what the foundation has in mind for your box lunches. Um, <laughs> so um, we're going to try to get through. We're not going to get through all of your questions. They're great questions. Really smart uh, group here today, really great questions. But I want to try to get through three or four more. So this is sort of lightning round um, okay. style, if, if you would. Um, uh, Rachel, can you use the imbrigia, the inhaled new form of, of, uh, of, of levodopa carbidopa uh, for an off episode, can you use that if you're not using carbidopa levodopa yet
1: That's a great question. So Usually, well, not usually, you always use levodopa in combination with a medication called carbidopa. So you're used to getting Sinemad or Ritari or Stilevo, and that's always levodopa combined with carbidopa. And that's because the carbidopa stops levodopa from being broken down before it gets to the brain. So the answer is most likely not, because if you take that levodopa, it's going to just be lost and get broken down before it gets to the brain where it's converted to dopamine. Um, so the answer would be, I mean, maybe there are ways around it. You can take some extra carbidopa or that sort of thing. But it's intended to be used in addition to your regular medications, which include Sinemet and carb, you know, carbidopa, levodopa.
0: Question about environmental um, pesticides. You mentioned earlier, Marco, that, that we still don't know, outside of the genetic things that put you at risk for Parkinson's, what else may cause uh, Parkinson's. But there's been lots and lots of research over the years that have, have led us to believe that the environment probably plays a role, um, and that pesticide exposure in particular is something that puts people at higher risk, certainly, for Parkinson's, even though it may, we're not sure if it's causation or, or association. So what, what can you tell us about uh, what we know now about the role of pesticides? How close are we to making that? connection firm?
2: Yeah, I mean, the working model right now of what we have of the cause of Parkinson's is that it it falls on a spectrum. And on one extreme end of the spectrum, we know that there are genetic causes of the disease. On the other end of the extreme spectrum, we know that there are uh, uh, chemicals and toxins in the environment that can cause the disease. We actually use those toxins quite a bit in a lot of the laboratory research to test uh, drugs before they go into into humans. Uh, And then there's a lot of unknowns. So um, that's part of what we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to fill up that spectrum so that we fully understand. But we try to take a holistic approach, and we understand it's not all about genetics. It's not all about the, uh, the, the toxins in the environment. But there's probably some type of uh, combination of factors that makes someone, uh, uh, perceptible to uh, Parkinson's disease.
0: Let's take, I'm going to take uh, two more of your questions because these are really good questions about symptomatic issues, and then I want to pose a last question to our, our panelists. Um, Rachel, who are the best candidates for DBS, this person would like to know?
1: So right now, DBS is approved for people who've had Parkinson's for at least four years and have motor fluctuations, which means that your symptoms fluctuate, you are on and your symptoms are well controlled, and then you go off and your symptoms are not well controlled and that kind of fluctuation happens on and off throughout the day and or you have dyskinesia, which is that involuntary uncontrolled movement that can happen with taking levodopa for longer periods of time and having Parkinson's for longer periods of time. The best candidate for Parkinson's is typically a person who gets a good response to medication but has those complications. So you take your medication and your symptoms are well controlled, but you have these ups and downs or dyskinesia that can't be controlled well with adjustments to your medication. So So DBS can typically give you your best day with medication with much less medication. The exception to that is people who don't respond, their tremor doesn't respond to medication. DBS can still be used pretty well in that instance. Um, the people who aren't great candidates for DBS or people who don't get a good response to their medication, are having um, extra non-movement symptoms, like a lot of cognitive problems, which can get worse with DBS, or a lot of speech and swallowing problems, or a lot of balance problems, which typically don't respond to the, the treatment.
0: And one last question that I think probably has occurred to, to many people here, and has to do with another difficult symptom that can happen, later late in um, uh, Parkinson's disease connected to these cognitive issues. And that's the the experience of having delusions uh, and hallucinations. It's a new drug approved, I guess, a little more than a year ago, Rachel, um, Nuplazid, which has been helpful to many people. Many people have also commented on the the commercials that I'm sure many of you have seen as being a little scary. And this question references that. The commercial says 50% of us will get hallucinations or delusions. Is that true?
1: That's a hard one. So I think it's up to 50% of people can have hallucinations or delusions. So hallucinations are seeing things that aren't there. Um, You can also have Um, tactile hallucinations, feeling things, um, or hearing things that aren't there, but in Parkinson's they're most often visual hallucinations. Delusions are believing things that aren't true. Often these are paranoid, so people will typically believe that a spouse is cheating on them, or family members are taking money from them, and things like that. Hallucinations and delusions do not happen in everybody with Parkinson's. If they do happen, they're typically later in the course of disease, and often they're associated with cognitive problems. So just like in people with Alzheimer's who have significant dementia or memory problems, they tend to come along with those other problems. So it's a little bit of a a more difficult situation because they're compounding memory and thinking problems that are already there, but they're typically associated with significant Significant cognitive problem if that's there.
0: And in a way, speak back to some of the things we've all been talking about is as we learn more, as we get through this data more clearly, we'll have a better sense who may be at risk for that particular symptom, as opposed to it just being a generalized statement, half of all people.
1: Exactly, and as you mentioned before, there are treatments for yeah. it. You know, there was a medication, Nuplazid, that was approved in 2016, which works in a new way to treat these, and there are other medications that we used before Nuplazid that we still use now. So there are ways to treat this.
0: Let me just pose the last question to, uh, to all of you. and. Um, I want to ask you each sort of what you see as the biggest challenge facing uh, the field and and the foundation in our pursuit of stopping Parkinson's and even preventing it before it even begins. What's the challenge that you you think about the most? um, But also, what inspires you the most to confront that challenge and keep your shoulder to the wheel in this work? Marco, start us out.
2: So I think the biggest challenge that I mentioned before with drug discovery being so slow and that I think a big part of our role is to, to speed it up. And that's a huge challenge and we speed it up by helping with recruitment. We speed it up by uh, funding the, the best science both preclinically and in the clinic. Um, so I, I see that as the biggest challenge. Um, what I'm very excited about is that I feel that our community is growing, a community of patients that are getting more engaged in, in doing clinical research. A community of researchers as I mentioned before who never were interested in Parkinson's disease and now they're all in uh, I'm very excited th- about that and I think that will that will help address the challenge of the slow uh, process of drug discovery
0: Rachel
1: those are tough questions Dave um, the I think the biggest challenge or one of the biggest challenges is understanding all of the nuances of Parkinson's and it's it's the classic the more we learn the more we realize we don't understand so you know we answer one question and there are five more waiting to be answered and so so I think that's the biggest challenge we've come so far in our understanding but we do have a long way to go Um, but we're chipping away at it for sure and I think the the thing that in inspires and motivates me the most is really the, the, the people and the different personal stories that I hear. So whether it's, you know, somebody's struggle with their freezing or I see them freezing and I think that makes me really <coughs> want to get something better for that person. Um, or it's one of the fellows who we just graduated who I think, gosh, you know, what have I done with my life? Because they just graduated and they're establishing a clinic to treat patients and get them into research where a clinic never existed. So you know, Montana. Just... <laughs> okay, I'll work on it. But um, but to see you know how high that bar is set and that we we just continue to need to reach higher and and farther.
0: sohini bring us home here on on challenge <laughs> and, and inspiration. Uh,
1: the
3: pressure. Um, I think for me, the challenge, the thing that keeps me up at night is what we can't control. So I know we have an amazing team. I know we have an amazing community. And I know we're making a lot of advances. What keeps me up at night is the things I. That we can't control, like the fact that there are so many failures in Alzheimer's, is that going to have an impact Mm -hmm. on federal funding for neuroscience, on pharmaceuticals' appetite for risk? Um, You know, those things where we can't really control, but it has a really significant impact Mm -hmm. on what's going on. And so those are the challenges that you know um, I really think about and I worry about. It doesn't mean that I don't think we have strategies for offsetting it, but they're harder to tackle because they're not within our control. That being said, if you flip to the positive, the thing that really inspires me, it actually um it's so uh, it's so interesting that you asked this question because maybe I would have had a different answer, um, you know, a few months ago. But I was recently at a birthday party. Um, my son's four years old, so it was a four-year-old birthday party. Woohoo! And um, we were talking, and I was talking to some of the parents. And I do a lot of travel, and next week I'm actually going to be gone for most of the week for some work travel. And we were just talking about it, and it was, you know, about the impact on the family, etc. And my son was there. And as those of you know, kids at that age listen to everything. They don't necessarily understand it, but at some point, you know, they were. There was a question about, you know, well, how does he take it, how does my son take it? And he sort of piped up and he said, it's hard. I'm sad when mommy's goes. And then he kind of paused and he said, but mommy does good. And that's actually what inspired me, because especially in this age where discourse is so negative and so ugly, it's really inspiring to know that what I'm doing is setting a model for my son that it's important to do good, however good is done. And I do feel that we at the foundation are really focused on doing good. Um,
0: (laughs) Let's give one more round of applause to three people doing good This is Michael J. Fox Thanks for listening to this podcast Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at (laughs) michaeljfox.org